0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Live from New York, I'm Julia Chastley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Plug Pools, the U.S. government to restrict TikTok and WeChat... Trying to cover up the U.S. ambassador blames Beijing for COVID-19 and strength in unity. Investors seem keen to play into the game maker's IPO. Thank goodness it's Friday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Friday And what a week it's been. We've had Fed meeting agitations, snowflake IPO celebrations and TikTok deal well, let's call it mutations assuming it even goes ahead let's get to the breaking news in the past hour on that i can tell you the united states is planning major new restrictions on TikTok and wechat from sunday this weekend the u.s commerce department says the two social media favorites will be prohibited from app stores and the u.s will make it illegal to host data from WeChat. What does this all mean? Selina Wang has more. Selina, I can tell you what I think. I've read through the whole commerce department briefing. This looks to me like Trump turning the screws and playing hardball over this deal. And it's consistent with concerns about security risks. And it's consistent with concerns about who actually gets to own TikTok US. Talk us through what's in this release. What do we make of it?
2: Julie, we've been talking about this for weeks, and every twist and turn has been pretty difficult to predict. As you said, the Trump administration says that this is all about ensuring national security. The announcement we're getting from the Commerce Department today is really in response to that executive order Trump had announced on August 6th, giving 45 days to get an elaboration on exactly what types of transaction would be banned. Now, for TikTok and WeChat, this means that as of Sunday, Apple and Google cannot Anymore have this app on their app stores, so no longer will it be downloadable. It is unclear, though, what it means for that deal between ByteDance and Oracle and if this is enough to save TikTok. Just hours ago, I reported, according to a source, that they had reached a tentative deal with the U.S. government. One expert told me that this could be a way for Trump to gain more leverage and have a negotiating tactic here to put even more pressure on ByteDance to agree to more concessions and agree to give up that majority ownership, which does seem to have been a sticking point. And this particular point here, I don't know if you picked it up in that announcement, shows that there is potentially some wiggle room. It says, "...the president has provided until November 12th for the national security concerns posed by TikTok to be resolved. If they are, the prohibitions in this order may be lifted." So it could be reached before Sunday or potentially this could go in place and then it could be lifted again if they're able to reach that agreement.
1: Yeah, it's such a great point because, and you said it right at the beginning, this is consistent with what the president himself has been saying all along. Look, is this or is this not a security concern? And that comes down to, one, who controls it? And two, the source code for this, whichever U.S. company or companies control this have to be able to own and have ownership of both the data and the source code for what creates TikTok. And that's what it comes down to. So it's consistent with playing hardball, I think, with China at this moment. Selina, you hinted at it. What does it mean for users in the interim? Assuming this goes ahead on Sunday and then we've got that window between Sunday and November 12th, if indeed we see or don't see a deal, what's it going to mean for users?
2: Julia, there's still so much that we don't know about what it's going to look like in practice. As the reading says, it means that you're not going to be able to download it from the app stores. There will be certainly issues in updating the app, but for current users who still have these apps, they may still be able to use them until they're out of date. (laughs) And for WeChat, it's quite confusing because we had received a statement from the Department of Justice saying that it's not going to target people who use this app for communication purposes. Because, of course, WeChat is a lifeline for the Chinese diaspora, for people who need to speak to family and friends back in China. It's also incredibly important to American businesses who use it as a marketing tool And we know that U.S. businesses have been trying to explain to the Trump administration how critical it is that they're still able to use this app. And earlier, you were really emphasizing this national security aspect of this. The security experts I've been speaking to about months on end about this particular case of what the Trump administration say that, yes, there are legitimate security concerns when it comes to Chinese companies operating in the United States and the idea that there is a blurred line between the private and public sector. But there are ways to mitigate those risks without outright banning them, which sets a bad precedent for future foreign technology companies operating in the U.S. And in the proposed deal, which I'd reported according to sources Oracle would be able to review the code, be able to make sure that there were no backdoors, there were going to be security mitigations put in place, which the companies clearly thought was enough to satisfy those security concerns. So we still have to wait and see if Trump is eventually going to agree with that.
1: Yes, can't look like you agree to this uh, without going in for a fight, Selena. Perhaps it comes down to that, to your, to your point. Very quickly, what's the likelihood that we see a flurry of downloads between now and Sunday nights? Quite often when you get told you can't do something, you actually do it whether you wanted to or not. <laughs>
2: Well, we know that the TikTok community has been extremely fervent saying, please (laughs) save TikTok. And Oracle, this software enterprise giant was deemed as a savior by TikTokers. I've already been seeing tweets flooding saying that quick, hurry up and download TikTok before it it gets banned. (laughs) So I will I'll keep you posted on on what type of data we see from there. And you're on TikTok, I believe. I am. I yes, certainly am. See, I'm I've, not. I've had a lot of imp- impassioned uh, folks <laughs> saying that let's hope this deal goes through.
1: <laughs> yeah. still not tempted. Not going to be joining in the next 24 hours. There we go.
2: Slida Wang, thank you so much for that.
1: All right. Let's get more reaction from China, too, because David Cover is in Beijing for us. David, uh, we can joke about this, but let's be clear. The, the broader tensions between the United States and China are about far more than just one entity like a TikTok or a Byte dance. It's defining, I think, the relationship, continuing to f- define the relationship going forward. And of course, for businesses and individuals, navigating those tensions too.
3: No question, Julia. And I can also say that Selena's on WeChat, too. And, and it's not just about messaging, because we use that here when she lived in here in Beijing. And most of us in mainland actually have to really live off of it, because it's what we use for our everyday payments. In fact, this is an anecdotal experience. We've noticed foreigners, that is, when we've been logging into our WeChat pay to make a purchase, they've been making us re-enter personal information, including photos of our passports, and expiration dates and uh, they keep track of all that it's not clear if it's related to what's going on now but it's certainly suspicious in timing and speaking of timing I mean we can't I'm not trying to diminish any national security concerns that are being brought up by the White House but we can't look past the timing of this leading up to the election and the campaign mode that we're in right now and part of that is the really strong rhetoric that we're seeing that is anti-China and that was echoed today in an interview that I had with the outgoing U.S. ambassador to China. Terry Branstad is leaving his posting after more than three years. It comes at a very, very tense time. As you pointed out, Julia, we are looking at several different issues from Hong Kong national security law to rising tensions in the South China Sea to Xinjiang and the allegations of widespread human rights abuse to conflict at the India-China border. It's all over the place. And one thing that we're seeing now come out from this outgoing U.S. ambassador is that he is holding strong to President Trump's criticism of China, in particular with regards to the coronavirus outbreak. Take a listen.
4: The Chinese system was such that they covered it up and they even penalized the doctors that were pointing it out at the very beginning. So the result was what could have been contained in Wuhan ended up becoming worldwide pandemic. And that was what's
3: so sad. What do you assess of President Trump's dealing with President Xi? Because you know what it's like to deal with Xi. President Trump's approach has been, well, it's, it's been a little bit all over the place, to be quite honest. I mean, earlier this year, we saw that he was saying that President Xi was a good friend, a gentleman complimenting his leadership, even as the outbreak was starting. And now we've seen he has not criticized President Xi by name, but he's clearly slamming China and the party. Is that the right approach, you think?
4: There's been more uh, telephone contact between President Trump and President uh, Xi than any other American president with the Chinese leader. And initially, I think President Trump believed the Chinese when they said uh, what they said about the virus. And then he and the rest of the world found out that what they said was not true and uh, misinformation and cover-ups occurred and the result was we are faced with a worldwide pandemic and it's really i think the communist system of china and their unwillingness to admit wrongdoing that caused this whole thing to happen and uh, that's the tragedy of
3: it a very harsh assessment there julia I asked the outgoing ambassador, I said, what's what's next? He said, this is retirement from being ambassador. He's very specific in that wording. I said, are you going to campaign for President Trump as you return to Iowa? He says, if the president asks, he'll do it.
1: I was going to say, David, uh, terrible timing in terms of the relationship between the two countries, but clearly a decision has been made that he's more potent campaigning for the president and back home here. But and you made this great point that all of this, we have to look particularly at this moment through a prism of proximity to the U.S. presidential election. But culturally here, the differences, whether it's the fact that one of these presidents has an election to win, the other, nothing happens in China without she say so. And the importance of that dominance of the relationship and those calls and the relationship between the two presidents that's going on. How important is culture and the point that he made about the need to save face in China?
3: You know, it is interesting, Julia, because the ambassador, while he's very critical there of of the initial handling and what he alleges to be the cover-up, and even what we reported as the silencing of whistleblowers, he also points out some of the positive. And culturally, what we have seen just living here is that things have returned to near normal as though it were life pre-COVID. And part of that falls into the as he portrays it, the authoritarian regime and their ability to control these cluster outbreaks and to control mass testing and contact tracing and essentially to control the spread of this virus, to contain it. So from a cultural aspect, I mean, obviously the mishandling early on is something that's being highlighted. But as he points out in the same breath is that there's also how they're handling it now in the aftermath compared to within the U.S. and it seems to be a success.
1: Yes. The downside of all the freedoms that get discussed here, and uh, perhaps the inability for leadership to control a situation like a pandemic, is such a great point, David right. Culver. Thank you so much for that, all David right, Culver, thanks, there Julia. in Beijing. Thank you. All right, let's get back to uh, business now. And the tech IPO blizzard continues. Game software developer Unity making its debut on the New York Stock Exchange today. Paul and Monica is with us. Before it's even trading, Paul, and great to have you with us, they're already adjusting the price higher. So we're seeing the enthusiasm here. But just explain what Unity is once again, so our audience understand the lure.
5: Yeah, definitely. The lure of Unity. We know how red hot the world of mobile gaming is and still console gaming for that matter with the new Xboxes and PS5 coming out from Sony soon. What Unity does is it helps develop, it has software that develops big popular games. EA is a customer, Take-Two is as well. This is the company that also helped develop Pokemon Go, which was the virtual reality mobile game that took the world by storm a few years ago. So they are very well known in the gaming industry. They sell subscriptions to the big gaming uh, developers to use their software to help create hot new games.
1: Yeah, it's quite fascinating. Um, We had Rishi Sharma of uh, Morgan Stanley Investment Management on uh, a week and a half ago, and he said, look, there's a $120 billion market for mobile apps, three quarters of which is spent on gaming apps at this moment. He was talking about the power of these gaming companies and the 3D platforms that they're building to host the future of the internet economy. It's part of what gave Epic the confidence perhaps to take on Apple over charging fees. What do you make of that when you look at an IPO and a stock opportunity like this, if we are talking about defining the future of of the internet and internet economy?
5: Yeah, exactly, Julia. And you mentioned, interestingly, Epic. Epic is a competitor to Unity because they have one of their own engines as well to help develop games. So it's going to be interesting to see how that battle develops. And I think that, you know, you've got clearly many younger and, uh, you know, people my age, you know, middle aged consumers who are happy playing these mobile games. Everyone talks about, you know, Netflix even has pointed out that you look at competition for mindshare and time right now for entertainment and it's not just about streaming tv shows and movies on platforms like netflix and amazon prime it's playing video games as well it is a burgeoning business that has you know billions of dollars every year it's bigger than hollywood in some respects with the number of you know games that come out and the revenue that's generated compared to hollywood blockbusters and obviously with people staying at home because of the pandemic, gaming is only going to get bigger and that should help Unity.
1: Gaming revenues, $20 billion in 2020, $160 billion this year. To your exact point is box office receipts have collapsed and they're down 97% approximately. Gaming revenues up between 50 and 100%. I mean, part of this is the pandemic, but to your point, um, this is not dissipating once we get through it. Paul and Monica. Yeah, and Unity a
5: big chunk of revenues up about 40% from a year ago.
1: And there we go. Wow. See another another thing I've missed. Paul and Monica, thank you so much for that. Not a big gamer, I have to say, <laughs> like at all. All right. Thank you Paul. These are the stories making headlines around the world. U.S. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden casting doubt on President Trump's claim that a coronavirus vaccine could be ready in time for the November election. Biden held an outdoor drive-in town hall Thursday night, speaking with voters who parked their cars around the stage.
5: I don't trust the president on vaccines. I trust Dr. Fauci. If Fauci says the vaccine is safe, I take the vaccine. That we should listen to the scientists, not to the president.
1: A key point here, of course, is that a vaccine may be ready. It might just not be available for broader use. President Trump, in the meantime, is dismissing recommendations by medical experts to avoid large gatherings, saying this at his own rally Thursday night.
6: By the way, officially, this is called a protest. You know that. We no longer call it rallies. We don't use the term rally, okay? Rachel knows. We don't call them rallies anymore because, you know, you're not allowed to have a political rally for more than 10 people. You're not allowed to go to church. You're not allowed to meet. You're not allowed to talk to anybody. You have to stay in a prison. Your home has become your prison.
1: In Israel, a resurgence of coronavirus is forcing a second nationwide lockdown just as the Jewish New Year is beginning. It comes as the number of infections reached a new high of nearly 5,000 a day. All right, so to come here on First Move, what could the latest U.S. move against Chinese apps mean for investors and for consumers? We'll be talking more about that TikTok Oracle deal or non-deal. We'll see. And going digital, the startup that's on a mission to modernize hospitals in Africa. That's coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move live from New York, where we're looking like a mostly higher open on Wall Street this Friday. Tech set to outperform as the Nasdaq tries to break a two-week losing streak actually gone from all the rage to all the range. The Nasdaq began the week bouncing, progressively lost steam. Apple down uh, almost 3% in the past five sessions. Facebook and Amazon too down around 5%. In the meantime, we've also got fresh uncertainty for US banks. It's not all about tech. The Federal Reserve announcing an unprecedented second round of financial stress tests this year. Powell and Co., want to know whether the nation's 34 largest banks can still handle severe economic strains. Limits on share buybacks and dividend hikes could be extended too, probably prudent in light of recent softening in the data like retail sales and the ongoing jobless benefit claims, particularly if Congress can't agree on more financial aid. A quick look at Asia now. Green across the board. Chinese stocks ended the week up some two percent. The Chinese yuan also benefiting from the pickup in data that we're seeing over there on track for its best weekly gain in around two years. All right, let's bring it back to our top story now. The U.S. Commerce Department moving to block WeChat and TikTok downloads in the United States beginning as soon as Sunday this on national security and data privacy grounds. The move represents a major escalation in the fight for the future of TikTok here in the United States. Dan Ives joins us now, Managing Director of Equity Research at Wedbush Securities. Dan, I said this was Trump turning the screws. This deal, no, not done yet. What do you make of it?
7: Look, it's a game of high stakes poker. And this really puts teeth in terms of you know Some of the the talk that you've seen out of the White House as well as Commerce Department really gives them 48 hours to get a deal done. I continue to think the issue here is the majority ownership of Oracle as well as Walmart, as well as the source code situation. That's That continues to be at the crux of the issues here. Now, ByteDance back against the wall, plug gets pulled, valuation goes down 70 to 80% day one.
1: Okay, so two things. Majority ownership, there was a suggestion that if you add in Oracle stake, if you add in uh, Walmart stake, if you add in some of the strategic investors, Sequoia Capital, for example, that would total to an uh, effective majority stake for, for U.S. companies. But the bottom line is, I think, that Dance has to hand over the source code, surely, to Oracle.
7: That's the crux of the issue. Because it goes back to the whole reason the Dell and Microsoft, that deal didn't happen. It was a right. source code algorithm because of the Chinese export rules. Now that's all going to need to get green light by Beijing going into Sunday night.
1: Talk about those export rules, because this is critical. This was Beijing saying, hang on a second, you're effectively forcing us to sell one of our companies. This was at the back end of, of August. They said, we're going to put restrictions in foreign technology being exported out of China to countries like the United States. It's, a, it's kind of an effective poison pill, potentially, to this deal.
7: Oh, that's exactly what it is. I mean, that really put mm. a poison pill on an acquisition First time they've obviously changed that since 2008. But but then it came down to, okay a partnership with Oracle, that was something that could get green-lighted, majority ownership. I believe the Rubik's Cube situation here is that source code algorithm. They need to open that up for Oracle, as well as Commerce Department and CFIUS, to approve the deal. That's going to be the key issue over the next 48 hours.
1: The key with the deal is that both sides have to walk away feeling like they won, or at least they won something and didn't cave. Who does this deal and the survival of TikTok ultimately on the Chinese side matter more to? Because the United States has 100 million potential voters two months out from a presidential election that may not be able to use TikTok beyond November 12th.
7: Yeah, that's, look, that's really the focus here because the White House put a lie in the sand. But so is China and Beijing in terms of just, the issue around source code. Now, for ByteDance and TikTok, I think they're willing to accept a majority ownership. Source code continues to be the issue. Potentially, you could have an IPO in the next year, some of the media reports talked about. Mm. But, but, Julia, the reason this is so important, you know, this could be a ripple effect, almost a Fort Sumter moment in terms of the U.S.-China cold tech war, depending on what happens over the next 48 hours.
1: This is such a great point. This is not just about one... Company or entity like a ByteDance Dance or a, a TikTok, but this is about defining what the future relationship. I think not just about technology too, but surely the two nations is like going forward. I think your yeah, dog agrees with me. Yeah, but
7: that's a big issue here, and, and and I think my dog agrees with you too, because <laughs> because ultimately. It, look, but, but that's the broader issue. Here. It's about enterprise, it's about consumer, it's about 5G, it's about the battle for security. There's no line in the sand here. And Now, OK, who caves? We, we, we can say that. But it comes down to for ByteDance and TikTok. This really puts teeth in you know, what, what you've heard from the White House in terms of getting a deal done. Majority ownership, access to the source code, that continues to be the crux.
1: On the flip side, though... Let's look at the bright side. If a deal does get done here, perhaps it creates some kind of model for how the two countries can work together, protect data, provide assurances on the Chinese side, for example, for the United States that, look, this this entity is secure and your data is with it.
6: It's
7: a fork in the road situation. Mm. Because to your point, on, on one side, we could take the negative side, ratcheting up of tensions, U.S.-China, cold tech war. On the other side, an agreement happens. I don't expect U.S. and China to be going to candlelight dinner. But it does help in terms of from a tech perspective, which is a big focus of the street. Of course, Huawei and 5G and everything else. So that's why the ramifications here are massive. Now, again, for Apple – I continue to view it that the WeChat issue is contained because I think that there's not going to be a ban on WeChat in China for iPhones.
1: Very quickly, Dan, I was just poring over what the president said last night and he said, I guess Microsoft is still involved. He didn't offer any further details. We'll make a decision. What's the probability that we see some new surprise and Microsoft perhaps is back involved at some point in the future?
7: Look, it's a it's a long shot, but it's possible, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's one where I think this is one where originally Nadella and Microsoft only wanted for an acquisition. Could they partner? Could they get back in with Walmart? I think this soap opera is going to have a lot of twists and turns next forty eight hours.
1: But you still think ultimately an Oracle TikTok deal takes place?
7: I think sixty five, seventy percent deal. It still happens, just given this game of high stakes poker, but. No doubt right now, you know, I think at least the White House and the Commerce Department showed their cards.
1: Yes. Two months out from a presidential election. We are not going to make this look easy. Dan lives of Wedbush Securities. Great to get your wisdom and hi to the dog. Thanks. The bucket opens next. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on the last trading day of the week, and we've been following... Of course, the breaking news throughout the show from Washington today, the U.S. moving to block new downloads of TikTok and WeChat as of Sunday this weekend. Overall, tech sentiment, though, not dented by the news. So the Nasdaq solidly higher, as you can see in early trading, some four-tenths of 1%. A word of warning, though, we could see oversized price swings on this quadruple-witching Friday on Wall Street when lots of option bets expire. That tends to create some funky price movement. So just watch out for that. Now, it may be called software, but it's packing a hard punch on the markets. It's been a big week for IPOs with Unity Software, as we mentioned earlier. JFrog 2, hot on the heels of the listing of Snowflake. Brian Belsky, Chief Investment Strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Brian, great to have you with us. Lots to discuss today. Let's start with the IPOs here for variation. What do you make of what we've seen this week?
8: I think it's pretty positive, Julia, especially given the fact that there's been a real scarcity of new ideas. Uh, in technology, and it's been one of the arguments on why people have been so concentrated in in some of those names, I think, as you start to see new leadership as identified by some of these IPOs, but other companies in tech as well. We've said for a long time that tech is going to be the leading sector for years to come. It's a secular quote-unquote category killer. We think a tech revolution is underway. But it's really important to see new leadership in any new bull market, which we think actually began as the second half of our 20-year bull market for the next 10 years that began on March 23rd. So this is very promising for the tech sector.
1: Oh, you've made a great point there. And that's, I guess, diversification. We often talk about the FANG stocks and the sheer scale upon which they represent in the broader index. You're saying actually for investors here, just having another option that looks like a good growth company is beneficial.
8: It is, because remember, when growth is scarce, growth outperforms. And that is why there's been such concentrated Mm. buying in some of those tech names. But as we start to see emerging technologies and new companies that access technology and have those technology types of operations, the growth will diversify, and that's going to be very good for the economy and obviously very good for the stock market.
1: But none of that justifies the soaring ramp up in the first day of trade for Snowflake. Is that irrational exuberance? Is that sort of the technicals of the market of how companies list? We talked about it on the show yesterday, this idea that no one really wants to sell and lots of people want to buy and it just forces the price up.
8: Well, that's part of it. And again, it goes back to the scarcity thing as well. I just believe that it's going to be part, part and parcel to a burgeoning new investment banking boom with respect to not only in, uh, new public offerings, but secondary offerings as well. You've seen stock splits and stock buybacks. Now I think you're probably going to start to see more stock in the market. And again, uh, it takes out of that uh, scarcity proposal and adds new capacity to the tech market into the market overall, which again is very good.
1: Okay, so you're positive because you're talking about tech leadership. You're talking about the start of a sort of burgeoning tech innovation period, I guess. And yet we have a 60 percent rise in the technology sector from the lows back in March. We then in three days pull back just over 10 percent. And everyone's making comparisons to the dot com era and panic. And is this now time perhaps to to lessen positions? Brian, you say that's a, a load of baloney, basically.
8: A load give of baloney. Yeah. Give us the reason why. Well, I think it's a, I'm so glad you brought it up, Julia, because I think it's really a part and parcel of what's going on in our society. It's a rush to judgment, mm-hmm. bullet point analysis. We don't go deep in terms of our thoughts and leadership and how we understand things. I think the tech bearishness is so unimaginative just to focus on 1999. If you go back, 2000, I'm sorry, if you go back and look at the fundamental construct of the technology sector, it's dramatically different than it was in 99, 2000. And just the sheer number of dividend-paying stocks to cash levels to the discernibility and stability of earnings. We've said for a long time that technology is the new consumer staples. That also includes members of the communication services sector, much different than the construct, again, of the technology sector, in 99-2000. You have to be careful not to say it's different this time, because it's not different this time in terms of certain trends with respect to concentration of, of stocks. That's why the new stocks and the IPOs and the new leadership in technology is so important right now.
1: Can you put some numbers on that because you raise great points about the proportion of dividend paying stocks, um, relative valuations, even balance sheet strength I think is another comparison that you can make. Can you give my audience a sense of what we're talking about here in terms of the differences?
8: Yeah, Just to keep it real simple, two to three times as many companies in the technology sector right now are paying dividends relative to what was happening uh, in 2000. That's dramatically different and technology has become actually a strong dividend growth player. Globally, in terms of cash flow, cash flow is, is to the double digit tune relative now to where it was in 99 2000. With respect to earnings, the level of earnings is nearly triple uh, what it was in 99 2000. Remember, a lot of the companies didn't have earnings or even sales in 99 2000 was really valued on, on enterprise value and then lastly the, the biggest argument against tech is this whole notion of a 30 to 40 times multiple where it is approaching you know the level of earnings you have to go back and look at where prices are and where earnings are and the earnings component of tech is much different again right now so i think to to go back and compare a trailing earnings multiple does not have a lot of grounding to it
1: and all of these things point to a greater maturity I think, of the company, a company that's able to pay dividends, that has earnings. It just suggests a stronger foundation for the companies that you're buying into.
8: It really does. Now, think about, you know, just the whole vaccine notion. We, we talk about it every day and how important technology is going to be to not only developing the vaccine, but distributing the vaccine. Technology companies were not involved in these types of things back 99 and 2000. It was still uh, really early on in its renaissance. So the maturity of the technology sector, I think, really goes unnoticed sometimes.
1: OK, you think and you've talked about this on the show that we're in a 20 year cyclical bull market It's different, though, from the the sort of bull market for the first 10 years after the financial crisis, just in the way that you have to look at it and also the way that you have to invest. Explain why and what you mean.
8: Very different. And thanks for mentioning that. You know, on March 23rd, when we came out and said that stocks would rally 40 to 50 percent from those lows, Hmm. we really believed that that was the control out delete uh, if, you, if you know what a PC is, a lot of Millennials don't know what a PC is, but sometimes we have to restart our computer. I think that restarted the bull market. The first 10 years of the bull market was, was all based on negativity and momentum and commodities and emerging markets and some of these things, and finally at, toward the end of it, we started to see the new leadership, which is clearly technology, communication services, and parts of consumer discretion. I think going forward, the next 10 years is going to be all about themes, company management, products, services, good old-fashioned bottoms-up fundamentals, where you're going to find growth in value stocks and value in growth stocks. I think it's going to be not that simple to apply mathematics and academics and, most importantly, macro variables to be buying stocks. You're going to be buying stocks based on stock market variables. So the market is a market of stocks, and the less macro and quant you can be in more bottoms up fundamental that's why we like areas like technology consumer discretionary and co- communication services in parts of financials and healthcare, i think are also going to be very very good going forward
1: yeah i call it the fluffy stuff the management things like this that are so intrinsic to a company that you have to understand bottom-up fundamentals from a company and beyond brian always a pleasure thank you so much brian belsky Thanks, Julia. we're on first move after this stay with us Welcome back to First Move. Fears of wider restrictions and new lockdowns caused by the pandemic in Europe are dragging European airline stocks down. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing in the European session. Ryanair, EasyJet and British Airways owner IAG all falling heavily. Look, that's the picture there. It comes as Ryanair announced today, and this is Europe's largest airline, that they would cut October capacity by a further 20%. That's in addition to the 20% cut already announced in mid-August. It's expecting its October capacity to fall from 50% to approximately 40% of the levels that we saw in October last year. The airline industry, of course, facing two major challenges at this time. It's the fear of flying, the safety fears amid a pandemic, but also for those that do travel, the logistical issues of what happens to the other side The quarantine restrictions and what that means for individuals, whether you're working or not. That's where flights to nowhere come in, which take off and land at the same
6: airport. Richard Quest reports. It may have been the fastest selling flight in Qantas history, a seven hour trip around Australia, where you don't get off the plane at all. Demand is high. Tickets sold out in just ten minutes. One of the pilots is just as excited to get going.
8: It's been a few months since I've been back in an aeroplane and I cannot wait to go flying. I cannot wait to see people on the aeroplane. I cannot wait to see excited, happy people
6: going flying. The date of this flight to nowhere and back is October the 10th and the plane is a Boeing 787 Dreamliner one usually reserved for international travel. In fact, I flew on it on the Perth to London non-stop. This time, though, it's a long local cruise.
8: So we have a fantastic day plan, which will see us depart Sydney around mid-morning. From there, we're going to head up the New South Wales coast. There'll be some great viewing on both sides of the aircraft as we make our way up. At this point, we'll follow the Great Barrier Reef for about 90 minutes, and we'll be doing some... um, Flights over certain reef marks at high and low altitudes. So it'll be great viewing for about 30 minutes at Uluru. Once we finish with that, we'll be then setting back to Sydney. Upon arrival, which will be getting close to sunset, we'll be doing a flyover of the harbour and the beaches of Sydney before landing finally back in Sydney.
6: Flights like these have become more common in recent months as people who have been under stay-at-home orders because of the pandemic are itching to get back on a plane. In July, Taipei's Shongshan Airport began the first of three flights to nowhere, where passengers got on board a plane and it never actually took off. Royal Brunei Airlines did a dine-and-fly sightseeing tour in August. And Singapore Airlines is reportedly considering a new route as well, to nowhere. For Qantas, the flight has some additional perks. Food from the chef Neil Perry a gift bag and an auction of memorabilia from Qantas' recently retired 747s. The beauty of these flights, as Qantas says, is there's no passport or quarantine required. And it's proving the old travel adage true. It is better to have travelled than to have arrived. Richard Quest, CNN, London
1: fascinating on this. A couple of observations for me, the geographical locations of these countries, countries that have handled the pandemic and continue to do so well, but also that consumers seem to be getting over the fear of flying amid a pandemic. Yet again, I go back to the point about quarantine. Perhaps there's something about the recovery of airline stocks if and when, when we get through this pandemic. All right, we're going to take a break. Moving from paper to digital records. We speak to a co-founder of a startup, Reshaping how African hospitals offer and fund healthcare. Welcome back to First Move. Keeping the population healthy and safe from COVID-19 and, of course, other diseases starts from the ground up. That's been the long-term thinking for the founders of Nigerian startup Helium Health. They say 90% of Africans' healthcare records, just to begin, are on paper, which clearly makes care inefficient but has other big consequences. Helium's health flagship product helps hospitals electronically store business records, patients' records and their information. It's now being used by over 300 hospitals in Nigeria, Ghana and Liberia. And the company says the next big step is turning that data into extra financial support. Arigoke Olobusi is the CEO of Helium Health and he joins us now from Lagos. Fantastic to have you on the show and and what a great idea. I want to talk about your company, but I first want you to set the scene of what healthcare in Nigeria looks like.
9: Thank you very much for having me, Julia. Um, When you think about the healthcare sector across Nigeria now, there is definitely a very fragmented healthcare market and there is a large need and demand for more capital for healthcare provision. So we could have more hospitals, um, more care being provided more properly. And because you also have an issue with uh, lots of doctors and medical practitioners leaving the country as well. So there's a huge demand for more infrastructure for healthcare and more importantly, digital infrastructure as well. So we start to gain more oversight and insight into what's actually going on in the healthcare sector. And that's the role that Healing Health starts, um, plays um, in this ecosystem.
1: It looks like sort of private companies effectively start up and they create a hospital, but they, they never actually seem to expand. I saw this astonishing statistic that just under 60 percent of hospitals don't borrow money. And part of the reason I think for that perhaps goes to your point about paper. If 90 percent of the, the records are paper, how do you prove that you're, you're making ends meet?
9: Absolutely. And on the first level, there is the problem about efficiency and operational efficiency, understanding your numbers as a care provider, understanding right. your, your, both your visits and your revenue numbers and your operations. But that's hard and almost impossible to do, except you have some form of technology. You know, one of the issues we face is that more than a third of the time, our hospitals that sign up for our platform they give us numbers, their estimated numbers for their volume of patients they see on paper versus what the system, the computer, our technology tells us after um, is marginally off, usually, you know, or it's significantly off, usually about a third of the time. Um, So they can't even tell how many patients they're seeing before you start talking about deeper issues. So there's first the operational problem where it's hard to run a hospital on paper. You need technology to surface the data and insights um, that you require to actually scale. And then there's the access to capital problem where Hospitals themselves have not been, um, there isn't that much capital available. And in order to access it as well, there's so many hoops you'd have to go through in order to get a loan from a bank to expand or to get more um, clinical equipment, like an MRI machine or a CT scan, for example. So there's the access to capital problem. There's there's a deeper problem of running a hospital or any kind of facility on paper um, is practically impossible because you're not going to have real time insights and data you need to understand your business.
1: Yeah, I mean, at its core is better patient care. And if there's no consistency or and we were just showing a statistic on screen of there being 40 percent of records have some form of inaccuracy in them. You can't provide consistent care for people, too, if you're sort of doing some degree of guesswork over how they've been treated in the past. So it's it is about expanding and about improving care, but it's also about the direct benefits to, to individuals actually of having a, a digital record of, of what care they've had in the past?
9: Absolutely. It is a, it's a public health concern because um, not only do you have a fragmented healthcare system where you have thousands of hospitals and providers and clinics in different sizes all across the country, but then because they run primarily on paper, it's almost as if patient data, vital patient information, is siloed you know, in different hospitals across across the nation, in thousands of hospitals across the nation. And in order to move and, you know, to actually accelerate our transition into a more data and technology-driven healthcare system, there's the deeper need for us to start to digitize our individual providers. Wherever care is being provided, to start going digital, that's when we start to get the data that we need on a micro level for the hospitals to actually be more efficient and deliver better care to the patients, but also on a macro level as well. Because there's a lot of data and insight that's missing to actually understand what's going on in the healthcare sector, um, overall, everything from both from the, you know, immunization, the vaccination side, all the way to actually disease surveillance. Um, And this became more apparent this year because of COVID.
1: Yeah, a hundred percent. And I do want to talk to you about the the COVID response. But again, the the beauty of data is you yeah. know what your spending outgoings are, you know what your incoming are, and then you can go to a, a bank or someone like you guys now with Care Credit Absolutely. and go, this is what we look like. We can borrow money, and that's what you're providing now.
9: That's correct. Our Helium Credit platform, which we just launched, essentially digitizes the process of um, Access and credit, requesting a loan, whether it's to open a new location or to purchase equipment or for, you know, to just cover operating expenses for hospitals and clinics, care providers, even pharmacies um, within Nigeria, where we've launched this Helium Credit product now. And the way it works is it essentially takes in all the insight from our Helium EMR electronic medical record system, our hospital management system, and it's able to dynamically provide you with an instant score on your hospital, on your credit score, instant credit score for your hospital. And then we're able to tell you how much we're able to lend to you almost instantly. So if you use our technology, our EMR system, we essentially now offer access to credit as well, because we've seen with the pool of hospitals we serve, the hundreds of them, that so many of them need more capital to scale their locations and hospitals and uh, care provision is actually a great business um, in this economy as well so we're providing access to capital and it's completely um, automated using machine learning algorithms because we're able to gain all the insights we need to understand your hospital's potential to scale and your affordability what line of credit you can take on and whether and your credit worthiness as well we can do that almost dynamically in, in real time using the data um, that's imputed on the system from using our solution at your hospital
1: and I know you're offering payments, insurance, and tenant clinic services as well. Okay, you're going to have to come back because I've asked you so many questions, I've run out of time. So we are going to talk about how this helped during COVID-19. You have an open invitation to come back. Thank you so much for Thank talking you, to Jennifer. us. Great to chat to you. We shall reconvene. I do say this a lot. I <laughs> talk too much. Adeke, okay, great <laughs> to have you with us, the CEO of Helium Health. That's it for the show. Thank you for joining us all week as usual. Have a safe weekend, and we'll see you same time, same place, Monday.